This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, in the middle of the Second World War, in 1943, an Oxford professor of English, a specialist in the poetry of the 17th century, accepted an invitation from the BBC to do a series of short radio talks on Christianity. That professor's name was Clive Staples Lewis, better known as C.S. Lewis. And these talks represented his entree into popular apologetics, a field in which he became one of the undisputed masters of the 20th century. In these famous radio talks, he didn't want, he said, to descend into the bitter disputes that had divided the Christian churches for centuries. He didn't want to get into the Protestant-Catholic divide, for example. Instead, he wanted to lay out the fundamentals that any Christian would hold. He wanted, in a word, to discuss, in his famous phrase, mere Christianity. Well, these radio presentations proved against all expectations to be remarkably popular. So popular, in fact, that Lewis was urged to publish them as a short book. That text, which was entitled Mere Christianity, has become one of the most respected and persuasive cases for Christianity ever written. You know, in a lot of my dialogues on YouTube with uh, atheists and agnostics, I'll often recommend they read Mere Christianity. Not because it's the most sophisticated, it isn't. It's not like reading Thomas Aquinas, but it's a very helpful way to get into a rational defense of Christianity. Well, Lewis's book and his talks commence with a theme that he returned to throughout his career. You can see it in his writings, even in the Narnia books and so on. That theme was the universality and inescapability of the moral law. The universality and inescapability of the moral law. He observes kind of commonsensically that this law is appealed to implicitly in the course of most of our ordinary conversations. How often we say something like, that's not fair, or but you promised, or leave him alone, he wasn't bothering you, or that was very kind of you. Think of in the course of the day, how often we appeal to that kind of, uh, uh, or we use that kind of language. Something Lewis said of great importance is assumed whenever we use this kind of language, namely, there is some objective moral standard that we share in common with our fellow human beings. If we assumed that we all simply had different and finally incommensurable desires, we might fight with each other, but we wouldn't quarrel with each other. You see, I'm driving it. Think of two animals that are, that are fighting over something. They have conflicting desires. We never talked, though, about animals quarreling with each other or arguing with each other. 
Human beings do indeed fight sometimes, but more often than not, we quarrel or we argue. But see, quarreling rests upon the assumption that we are appealing together to some commonly held standard. So, for example, two people wouldn't argue about a call on a baseball field unless they together knew and accepted the standards of baseball. People who are playing entirely different games don't argue about balls and strikes. If you're arguing about balls and strikes, you're assuming that both of you know what a ball and strike are. Both of you know what the strike zone is. Both of you know the fundamental rules of baseball. What you're arguing about is, well, whether that was a ball or strike. So when I call someone out for being unfair, I'm assuming that both he and I accept some standard of what fairness is. Mind you, again, he'll probably argue with me about whether his action was in fact unfair. He might offer all kinds of justifications and excuses for his behavior. He might say that given the circumstances, he had no choice but to do what he did, etc., But see, in all of this, he's assuming with me that there is a standard of justice or right behavior. That's not being disputed. Someone might object that all this is just culturally determined or culturally relative. Perhaps the standards that obtain here don't obtain in other countries or cultures around the world. Now, I know that's kind of a standard argument, but you know, it just isn't true. Even the most casual survey of the cultures around the planet reveal that there's an overwhelming congruence of moral convictions across cultural and national lines. Now just think for a second. Is there a nation, could we even conceive of a nation that admires those who run from the battlefield? Could you imagine a culture, could you imagine a people who admire those who put themselves first or who are indifferent to the sufferings of others? Can you imagine a culture or a country who admire people who are habitually unfair? Come on. The longer you look at the cultural situation around the world, the more you find this commonality in basic moral sensibility. Again, (laughs) there are bad people everywhere. But there seems to be a pretty clear consensus about what makes them bad, no matter what culture you're in. There is now, if I can use some language that uh, C.S. Lewis used later in his career, there is this Tao, T-A-O. He's appealing to that uh, principle of Taoism. There is some basic moral consensus. There's a moral law that we recognize as objective. It's not simply a matter of our subjective desires. And we are held bound by it. Okay? If you're with me and C.S. Lewis so far, here's the really, really interesting follow-up question. A question that I think gets more interesting the more you think about it. Where does this law come from? How do we account for the universality of this moral law, which beguiles the mind and constrains the will, and which we recognize does not come from us? 
So again, it's a very important point, isn't it? If the law just came from me, it's my little private law, I wouldn't argue about it. It might be the subject of, of fighting, but not of arguing or quarreling. If I've got some subjective, you know, I like uh, peas rather than carrots, I don't really argue about that. It's just a matter of my own personal proclivity. But see, we recognize the moral law isn't like that. It's an objective law to which we can appeal. So where does it come from? C.S. Lewis stands in a long tradition that recognizes this law as coming from a great personal and intelligent lawgiver. It's a law, isn't it? It's a law. We recognize that. It's binding. It's universal. And it doesn't come from us. We can't just say it's culturally conditioned because it's universal. Where does it come from? The best answer, Lewis says, is that it comes from a great personal and intelligent lawgiver. It comes in a word from God. Thomas Aquinas, many centuries before C.S. Lewis, said much the same thing. He spoke of the natural law. It's what Lewis means by the Tao. The natural law, Aquinas said, is a reflection of the eternal law, which means the mind of God. Our sense of moral obligation is, as it were, the voice of God within us, the echo of the voice of God within us. John Henry Newman, just a few decades before the time of C.S. Lewis, said that the conscience, see, what's the conscience? But our keen awareness of the moral law in all of its implications, the conscience is, in his famous line, the aboriginal vicar of Christ in the soul. Isn't that terrific? The vicar of Christ, the representative of God in the soul is the conscience. The conscience, this keen awareness of the moral law, is the divine voice whispering to us, urging us on, critiquing us when necessary, rewarding us when appropriate. How interesting, Newman observes. We don't refer to our aesthetic sense or our feel for the game of baseball as voices, but we do indeed refer to the conscience as a voice, it's, again, interesting. Think about it for a bit. You might say you've got a really good feel for art. Some people do. They have an aesthetic sense. They know what makes a picture beautiful. They know what makes a, a work of architecture beautiful. They don't say that my voice, the voice of my aesthetic sensibility told me. Some people have a feel for a game. They have a feel for golf or a feel for baseball. They don't say, well, this voice told me. But yet, when we talk about the conscience, we do indeed use that word voice. Why? Why? I would argue, and Lewis would too, and Newman, it's not just a cultural construct. We're recognizing something very real, that when we are in touch with the conscience, which is this awareness of the moral law, we know we are in the presence of someone who is talking to us. We know that when we make moral decisions, we are in the presence of someone who is urging us on or who's disappointed in the decision we've made. Now, I've taken you through all this from C.S. Lewis to Thomas Aquinas to John Henry Newman precisely because of our first reading for this week. 
which is from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses says to the people, Moses, mind you, the great lawgiver, if only you would heed the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and statutes. And then he specifies about this voice. Listen. This command that I enjoin on you today is not too mysterious and remote for you. It's not up in the sky, nor is it across the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea to get it for us? Then he says this, no, it is something very near to you, already in your mouths and in your hearts. Right, right. Where's the voice of God? We say, oh, we don't hear the voice of God anymore. God spoke long ago to these great figures in the Bible. He doesn't speak anymore. Nonsense. The voice of God is not up in the sky somewhere, not across the sea. I have to go looking for it. The voice of God is in us. What is it? It's the voice of conscience. It's the keen awareness of the moral law. It's the voice of someone who's commanding us, urging us to be good. Conscience, the moral law, the voice of God. What's this reading telling us? It couldn't be simpler. Listen to it. Abide by it. Attend to it. Hear the word of the Lord. It's closer to you than you are to yourself. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers. Every day, everywhere.